Hello and welcome back to the In Squash podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. And uh, basically, let's get started by saying just uh, aside from the tour final, which is coming up uh, in the not too distant future, the 2022-23 PSA season is now complete. And it's been uh, an amazing one. Uh, On the men's side, definitely player of the season, without question, uh, in my mind anyways, uh, and I think probably for most of you, Ali Farag, uh, how can you argue uh, with that? He's won the last four events, including the World Champs and the British Open, and what a comeback uh, season that was for him. Uh, I'd argue, though, that the comeback player of the year would have to be uh, Kareem Abdul-Gawad, but we'll talk about uh, all of this in the recap episode that's coming up very soon. Uh, uh, but just in terms of uh, on the women's side as well, Nor El Sherbini, she took home the crown jewels for the women and definitely the player of the year there. But to add a bit of intrigue uh, on that side, uh, at the end of the season, who do we find at uh, number one right now? Uh, Noran Gohar is back there again. Uh, once again, proving to be the most consistent uh, performer throughout the season. I mean, she got to most, uh, if not all, of the major uh, finals there. And uh, again, uh, I'll be doing a season recap episode Uh, in a few weeks time and with any luck uh, with a very special guest to help me along with that because I'm going to need some help Uh, there's a bit of heavy lifting there uh, that goes on with the season ending recap and I hope to have a very special guest to, to help me along with that now today episode 275 uh, is a really good one uh, it's with cross court analytics uh, very own jamie abbott who joined us a few years ago i think two years back uh, shortly after uh, cca was launched and uh, cross court analytics has grown tremendously since then and today is part one of a two-part series of eps where we look at cross-court analytics as a whole and what it brings to the table, uh, what they've found in terms of the number of officiating decisions made during matches. That's one of the, uh, they've been crunching a few numbers there. What the numbers say uh, that help players, uh, the players that they work with. Uh, I think they work with uh, several top players, including uh, Amanda Sobe, Olivia Fichter, uh, Ali Abu Elainen uh, are amongst them. Uh, we also take a deep dive into the analytics uh, behind Kareem Abdul-Gawad's comeback season and even uh, dating back to 2020 when he was struggling with that heel injury that's kept, that kept him out for so long and threatened to end his career, basically. And uh, we talk about much, much more. It's a really great uh, episode. Lots of food for thought in there as well as what uh, squash can do with, uh, with analytics like uh, the stuff that cross-court analytics is creating. Now, before we get into episode 275, let's talk about open squash. Squash, our great sponsor. Um, they're a New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. They've brought on board several like-minded squash pros, including world number one, Ali Farag, and uh, reigning World Open and British Open champion, Victor Quinn, who's had an incredible season, along with Gina Kennedy, Nathan Lake, and many more. And right now, juniors in and around New York City, you should look into the uh, Open Squash's summer camps. Why, you may say? One, learn something new. Uh, this is a unique chance to learn and improve your squash game in a short time. No doubt, by the end of the summer, squash campers will fall in love with the game of squash, too. It's easy to form close bonds with people who share your passion for 
for competitive fun. Friendships will be made at squash camps that will last throughout the year. Three, uh, endless perks, prizes, awards, t-shirts, lasting memories are just a few. Every day brings chances for new achievements and new challenges at these camps. And four, last but not least, there's the summer camp, sea, uh, summer camp ending trick shot contest where at the end of the summer there'll be a trick shot competition and some incredible prizes for the winners. So check out summer camps on offer at www.opensquash.org. Now let's talk squash analytics. An, an excellent chat today with Jamie Abbott of Cross Court Analytics. Jerry, hey. Jamie, hey, how you doing, buddy? Yeah, good to see you. Very well, thank good you. Good to see you. It's been uh, been two years. I just checked. Yeah, I was looking back through the um, the listings. Actually, yeah, October twenty twenty was the last one we did, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, episode one six seven. I guess just right after you uh, started Cross Court An- Analytics, right? That's right. Yeah, we were about six months into it at that point, um, and just recently we've uh, turned three as as a squash data outfit. So yeah, it's been a right fabulous on. journey. Come a long way. How's that? Uh, I mean, just to, I guess, to get things started, I mean, uh, a lot of people do know a little bit about cross-court analytics, but maybe some people don't know exactly what it's all about. So uh, just to introduce it for those who don't know about it, or maybe to flesh it out a bit uh, for those who do know a little bit, what is um, what exactly are you guys doing? Uh, I, I know what you're doing, but... Uh, yeah, certainly. So we, we started, as I say, three years ago, one of the things to come out of COVID, there's a group of three of us playing squash for five or six times a week. And overnight, as you well know, all the courts closed. So we wanted to channel that activity into um, something uh, else in the squash world. At the, at the time, I was doing a master's in linguistics with a lot of work on stats. So I was really keen to bring that stats across into the squash world. Um, yeah, everyone's well aware just how ubiquitous these stats are in analyzing basketball, baseball, cricket, football, whatever you want to to think. Um, so yeah, really keen to bring that into squash. Um, and that's something we've been working on over the past few years or so. Um, I think there's a couple of ways to think about what analytics is. Um, fundamentally, analytics is finding meaningful patterns in data. And I think that can either confirm and put numbers on what we know already or it can bring to light new things which the eye test will have missed so one of the things i like to think about in terms of that is looking at Tarek moment and the way he takes the ball short so we all know through watching psa that Tarek moment hits a lot of drop shots and that is absolutely true he hits one in six or one in seven shots into the front corners that's that's really quite high um but it's also revealing that this is just in line with Ali Farag and Diego Elias as well. In fact, Ali Farag plays into the front corners marginally more than Tarek Momin does, and that may not be so obvious. Um, when you break it down further, Tarek Momin actually plays the drop shot from deep on his forehand really rarely, and that's something which might not be obvious to to listeners. Just once every 15 opportunities, way down on, on Elias and, and Farag. Um, but it's the, the reason that Momin to our eyes looks like he plays so many drop shots is because he plays it perhaps from where other people don't when i when i think of players some players i sort of associate a shot in my head with watching them so Nuran goha might be this powerful straight drive or 
with Paul Cole, it might be charging into the front and lifting it high from a really stable base. For Tarek Moment, I think of a looped backhand drive coming in from his opponent. Moment steps across and volleys it from that mid-left region into the front left, right? Yeah. Um, and he does this a hell of a lot. 40% of shots from mid-left, Tarek Moment takes into the front corners, which is about twice as high as anyone else. Um, so it's those kind of things, putting numbers on stuff we know and also hopefully elucidating some things we don't. That's awesome. Uh, I was going to ask you, this just came to mind, like in, like you referenced uh, cricket, uh, uh, baseball basketball and they have uh, stats that they go to right of course basketball it's the three point you know what the you know percentages are free throws block shots uh, so on and so forth cricket i have no idea what the stats might be but uh, i'm sure there's bowls or whatever wickets is that what they're called (laughs) yeah that's one of the things yeah Yeah, it's uh (laughs) anyhow uh but in squash, uh, until now, until recently, until you guys have come along, and perhaps I'm sure others who follow the game might have come up with uh, statistics of their own, but uh, it's something that we don't really see much uh, of. Like when we talk squash on squash TV, and you know the guys, they 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 won't say they won't bring up the stat like so and so has hit so this many nicks or the, uh, this statistic is. Re- they don't reference statistics. In no, they don't. And, they don't. And tennis, even in tennis, they do. I mean, uh, you know, first serve percentage, for example, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so how how uh, I mean, we're we're getting a little bit. This isn't anything that we discussed that we talk about earlier, but uh, I think it's something that's worth uh, discussing, and it's obviously something that that you and uh, Stuart and and your team have have uh, talked about. Uh, what are the statistics that that we might consider to be? Uh, <clears throat> Uh, related to squash that, that that we could see more of and that are worth uh, referencing in matches. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in fact, we actually um, sent out a survey to our readers uh, and listeners asking them what stats they would like to, mm-hmm. to see in squash matches or brought up on the squash TV feed. Um, unsurprisingly, top of that list was winner and error numbers, um, which is, I think, one of the fundamental stats to sort of help explain what is going on in in, in any game of squash. Um, breaking that down also by shot type um, as well. Um, so for instance, one of the matches which really stands out to me was uh, at the back end of last year when Mohamed El Shabagi was really coming back after a, a bit of a slump. Um, one of the tournaments in New Zealand, in fact, when he seemed to um, have the wool over Paul Cole for a bit um, in consecutive tournaments. And he was really finding that forehand cross-court volley um, into the nick. It was just magnetically drawn in the way that it so beautifully is with Shabagi, Yasao and and those two in particular. Um, and usually El Shabagi, for every one error he hits with this big forehand cross-court nick attempt he would make 1.5 winners so like a decent return but nothing special and certainly something to to be wary of from him it wouldn't have to flip far before that attempted shot was probably less productive for him than more um but against paul cole in in that particular fight he hit five winners like that and just one unforced error so i think it was a really nice way to point to the fact that this was really working for him on this occasion um Five five to one win it win it error ratio, so five to one yeah. in terms of ratio and and plus four in terms of absolute numbers. Um, so it, it's that kind of thing. I think comparing what is happening in the match 
in the moment with the baseline, with what a player usually does or what the tour does as an average. One of the reasons it's not yet in squash, even though we're, we're really keen to provide it and uh, and we're keen to work with the PSA on that, is just the total amount of data it takes to 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 collect. It, this is an expensive game. Um, in order to have baselines on single players and, and tour averages, you need to spend a lot of money to collect that data. And that's something we're in position to do. And hopefully with the PSA, with this new investment uh, in America um, from the Water family, then that's something that the PSA might be willing to look at. Yeah, that's really interesting uh, stuff there. And I think uh, obviously you guys are, you know, think, thinking about this all the time. And, you know, it, it, you, know you think about, uh, you know, for example, um, something like how 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 uh, the length of a rally or how many how many uh uh length balls before someone goes for a winner how many winners in a match how many nick nicks per per game or i i don't know uh, just, just different it's exciting even just to think about what statistics we could throw up uh, against the wall and which ones would stick in terms of uh, of squash isn't it yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most relatable ones for players, um, amateur players who are watching the PSA um, stream, and again, this was uh, brought home to us when we asked readers what stats they would like to see, is rally length. Um, it's a very simple one for, for us to provide. Um, it falls naturally out of all the shot data we collect. We just tally up the total of shots by both players, and, and presto, you have you have rally length. Um, so it we don't have much data on amateur matches, but and of course there's a huge variation in the standard of amateur matches, but you typically see in our experience approximately six shots on average per rally at, yeah. at club level. So we're talking about the two thousand squash levels kind of uh, level to put that in context. Um, on the men's side of the PSA tour, at the top of the table, we're looking at fifteen shots on average per rally. And equivalent for the women's is eleven shots per rally. So, so really, really far in excess of uh, what you and I do on the squash court. Anyway, I was just watching. It just came up on my, I think it was YouTube feed or Facebook feed or something. And I was just watching Jahangir playing Dit Ditmar. It was I forget. I don't know what year it was. And it was a fourteen minute exchange of points. Uh, it was only like two or three points. But the guy, I mean, the rallies were like the 100, 100 shot rallies, right? It's yeah, like it's completely it's different. Phenomenal. I mean, it'd be nice that uh, this is probably something you guys have done already, but, you know, just to compare eras as well. Uh, it's so. absolutely one of the things we, we'd love to do. Um, yeah, every, everyone loves to talk about was what, what, what if you put that player into this era or this player into that era? Uh, um, it, it, it's a fascinating question. And also just to, to compare those baselines, um, it's not something we've done. We would absolutely love to, and I know the footage does exist for us to go back and do it. Um, it's a question of time and money, um, and uh, if yeah. someone is willing to, to to allow us to do it, then we absolutely yeah, if it will. If was your full-time job, I guess it'd be a different story, right? Absolutely. That's that, that's still the dream with this. Um, there's there's three of us um, sort of co-founders, co-directors at CrossCore Analytics, um, and since we've last spoke, uh, we've actually um, got a team of nine data loggers now, which is uh, which is great. So we're a growing company, twelve of us in total. Um, but this is still nothing that any of us do full time. Um, we have jobs on the side, and uh, we would love to take this full time if we could. All right, let's get into the meat of this because I think we could talk about the you know, you know the you know the the vision of, of this for a long time. I, I'd love I'd love to talk. Uh, maybe maybe that's a future episode or. 
down the road. But uh, yeah, just in terms of uh, uh, you guys took a, a cross court to analytics. You guys took a deep dive into the numbers. Uh, one one area was uh, behind the decisions made in matches uh, this season and last, I think. So uh, this is in the blog on your on your homepage there. But uh, just in terms of, of that, what did you guys uh, come up with there when you crunched the numbers? Yeah, this was a really interesting project for me to look at. Um, and again, it, it it goes back to that putting numbers on stuff we already know. There's this perception in the men's game that it's quite stop-start. There's a lot of decisions. The referees called into play a lot. And actually, um, it's the women's side of the tour where things are much more, more free-flowing. People get on with it. Think no further than hard drilling the ball into Hanya Hamami's calf and just Hamami carrying on as per usual. I contrast that actually with um, Marwan versus Mustafa Rasal in the Houston Open in January 2023, where it was kind of farcical. Nothing really seemed to happen, but Marwan was seemingly in agony on the floor. Um, and I still don't quite know what happened there. I can um, tell you. So, uh, he, he sort of got, to, he was thinking he was playing the wrong sport. Uh, he was playing the wrong sport. He was playing football, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I know that Asal has has <laughs> has said how much he wants to uh, ch- change squash into football. I think there are plenty of elements like of that which would be fabulous in terms of the attention and uh, the interest, but maybe some of the histrionics. He's trying, but he's not getting very far, is he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, if he keeps being sidelined for these uh, hand and shirt pulling antics, he um he might not have a chance to uh, try and regain his number one crown, but. That's for a different conversation. We digress. Um, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so yeah, and it, it's these kind of stories which I, I love to to break down when when time allows and, and and take a look at the data which we've collected and see what the numbers say on this. Provide some actual concrete evidence to 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 the to the narratives out there. Um, so there's a, this there's this perception in the men's game that it's quite stop start and uh, full of histrionics and. I want to say at the outset that the way we collect decisions, we don't attach blame in any way. We we don't mm. we we don't think it's particularly objective to say it a player A was responsible for that or player B was was wrongly blamed for that or whatever. We just keep it very objective. So this is purely the number of no let strokes or lets awarded, i.e., when a refereeing decision finishes a point instead of a winner or an error. Um, and. There's a few ways to to cut this. Um, you can either look of refereeing decisions per game. You can look at refereeing decisions per 100 shots, um, or you can look at refereeing decisions in terms of percentage of rallies which end in a decision. I think there are three different ways to look at it, and and all have their merits. So, if you start with the first and foremost, looking at how many times a referee is called to make a decision per game, in the women's tour, this is four decisions per game, and pleasingly as we expected in the men's tour this is five so one more decision per game in the men's tour compared with the women's and that was a really nice sort of uh benchmark for us to think yes this, there's something here with, with with these numbers um this is quite reflective of what we're seeing with the eye test as well um but it, it, it's worth going a bit deeper than that because there's something slightly problematic in that in the sense that men play longer rallies than women. So the average rally length for men is 15 shots at the top of the PSA game and 11 shots for women. So there's because they play longer shots, there's more chance for a decision to be made, right? Mm. Um, so 
A different way to look at that is to break it down by refereeing decisions per 100 shots. So same number of shots in the men's tour or women's tour. Um, and when you do this, it's perhaps surprisingly massively skewed towards the women in terms of how many times the referee is called into play. Mm. So seven of the top 10 players, when you look at refereeing decisions per 100 shots on the women's side of the tour, um, Having said that, this is also slightly problematic, and this is what's quite interesting about data. There's different ways to cut it, and you get different answers depending on what you want to believe. Um, this is also problematic in the sense that women's rallies are shorter, as we've said, 11 versus 15. So in any given 100 shots, you have about nine women's rallies compared with six men's rallies. And with more completed rallies, you'd expect more decisions. So doing it 100 shots for 100 shots is not quite ideal either. So I was circling this, and I think the best way to think about it is to ask what percentage of rallies ended a decision. And this is slightly closer to the decisions per game or decisions per match way you break it down. And and according to that analysis, men come out on top here. Um, one of the things which, well, I'll put some numbers on that. Um, so about about 24, 25% of men's rallies end in uh, a decision and slightly fewer for the women's about 20%. Um, one of the things which was completely unambiguous, no matter how you cut the data. Um, so, and again, I want to reiterate that we don't attach blame to these decisions. Sorry, Jamie. Sorry, Jamie. Oh, the, uh, uh, just prior to that, I think you, you just cut out for a second. So I missed, we missed the beginning of the, the intro of what you were just getting into. Could you just go back? Or, to, yeah, if you don't mind. Of course. Yeah. So I, I was saying that there's, <laughs> One thing which was completely unambiguous, no matter how you cut the data in terms of refereeing interventions, is that Mustafa Rasal comes out on top, be that by number of shots, by decisions per game, um, or percentage of rallies ending in a decision. Um, and I want to stress again that we don't attach blame to this. So this is not some kind of Asal witch hunt. Proponents of Asal will say his opponents are looking for trouble because he has a reputation. Those who oppose Asal will say, yes, this is proof that he is indeed a dirty underhand player. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that the referee is called into action when Asal plays more than when anyone else plays. It's eight decisions per game. So over one in every three rallies that Asal plays ends in a decision. And clearly this is a really unsat unsatisfactory place for the sport to be in when one of its superstars, former world number one, Perhaps we'll be world number again, world number one shortly again soon, if things go to plan for him next season. Um, that so many of his rallies are not ending in the way that squash was meant to end. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting uh, stuff. Uh, something that I'd like uh, that just sort of came to mind with all of this, and uh, especially after I thought of this after watching the the, the Jahangir uh, Dipmar uh, display, which was I, I highly recommend watching it. There were several uh, ref. There were several interventions or let let uh, decisions made during that period, and not there might have been one chirp, like one word was said to the referee during that time. And they they didn't really say anything. They just got on with it. So so what I I was wondering in in terms of the statistics, and again you want to keep it objective. Uh, when a player. Uh, argues with the referee what is the outcome of the next point 
It's a really interesting question. Um, how to keep that objective, I think, would be really hard. What counts well, as could, chirping you? or... Uh, sorry for interrupting. The, I mean, you could, like, like, like you, you would just say, okay, so-and-so spoke to the referee without, you know, he just spoke. We, we don't know how he spoke. We don't know what he said. He just spoke. Uh, and then you could just, whatever happens in the next point, that's what happens. Certainly. Yeah, I think I think that's a really, a really interesting place to take this in terms of how to break it down further um and it was one of the things which i think dominated the british open final on the men's side of the tour recently elias um who is usually quite a cool and calm collected customer actually had some had some words with the referee didn't he and it seemed to throw him off his game um yeah. a bit more than he would like perhaps when he watches the match back that's something he can he can focus on um but certainly sort of I know some players like to use that antagonism as a galvanizing factor to bring it back to cricket. Mark Waugh famously is a, a former Australian player. Um, if he was feeling perhaps slightly passive or under the weather or, or just not quite switched on in that sort of really intense mental state you need to be in to perform, he, would, he's, he said that he would often pick fights with the opposition. He would insult one of the nearby opposition players just to get a rise out of them. Right. So that he would have to raise his game to combat that as well. So I think it's a really, a really interesting um, angle. In fact, I, I, I'm sure you watched it as well, given um, how much uh, you, you learned on him in, on these pods. But I watched a Jonathan Power documentary oh, yeah. on squash skills recently, absolutely. which is absolutely yeah, yeah. fantastic. And he said this brilliant line, I thought, about focus in squash matches. He said that it's like trying to calibrate a needle. You don't want to be too fired up or too passive and you just need to keep that needle somewhere in the middle and once you've found it lock it in place and once you've locked it in place that perfect balance between focus and being pumped up it's a, it's a beautiful place to be and i think even as amateur players that is something we can all probably relate to oh, yeah. one in every 100 matches when it when it clicks in it's a beautiful place to be yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, this is really interesting uh, in terms of the decision-making side. And again, much like what we were uh, discussing before, there's so many areas that, that you can investigate here. And, and I think uh, obviously what you've done so far is really, uh, it bodes well for maybe what you have going forward in terms of the de decision-making stuff. So uh, that's exciting. Lots of exciting stuff here, uh, Jamie. Uh, now, just uh, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were chatting, uh, and I'm not sure about you, but uh, Kareem Abdul-Gawad, uh, clearly uh, oh, he's one of probably my favorite player to watch. I, once he, he, had, he had a huge uh, season, comeback uh, season, comeback player of the year. If I get to vote on that one again, uh, he's definitely the guy. Uh, but uh, watching him play, at the uh, just the last couple of months, uh, it's improved my game. I mean, uh, just uh, the way he plays, how smooth he is, uh, what he can do with the ball. And uh, I mean, you guys uh, took a look at the Gawad analytics, and I'd like to hear sort of how you approach that and, and what you came up with. Yeah, certainly. Um, Gawad's been a really interesting player for us. Um, so we, as I mentioned, started back in 2020. And this was just when Gawad was, in fact, sort of being most strongly plagued by his heel injury. Um, so it was one of those ones where for ages and ages, despite still being ranked as a top 10 player, we had no stats on him because he wasn't playing. So if you look back to our early days, a lot of our charts 
cards actually come with an asterisk of saying um, we don't have enough matches of guards to to make reasonable conclusions here. Um, so it, it's been a privilege for me as well to see him to see him play and to see him come back this year. I've seen him twice live actually in yeah. the UK. So firstly down at Canary Wharf. And then in Manchester, which was absolutely fabulous, seeing that backhand drop too, and uh, oh, it's just amazing. I mean, what he what he can do and how smooth he is on court is it's incredible. Yeah, it, it's really really quite something. Um, it's fabulous to see him back. So so yeah, one of the things I wanted to do was was use him back on tour as a chance to to build up our, our stats profile on him and and take a look at his fabulous run which he did at the World Championships. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he went into these championships ranked number seventeen, um, and the matches I've broken down here are the last sixteen onwards, which I thought was quite nice because he wasn't even meant to get that far. It right. seems strange to think, <laughs> given how well he's playing and how he's got to the final of the World Championships. He won up Tasia recently in the UK and also got to the final of Manchester. Um, it's strange to think that he wasn't even meant to get as far as the last 16, but he took out Marwan in the last 16 in Chicago, then Elias in the quarters, Mohamed El Shabagi in the semis, and then eventually lost to, to Farag in that injury hit final, which really could have gone a different way had he managed to to cling on and win game one, I think. Um, and there are several sort of areas I looked at when, when breaking down Gawad in Chicago. The first um, was really pleasing to me uh, in the sense that we looked at a stat that we've recently brought into our stable, and this is looking at meters covered per rally, so distance covered by each player when they play uh, in rallies, games and matches and so on. Um, And we all know that Gawad on his day is one of those players you associate with having his opponent on a string, sort of pushing them from corner to corner, really sort of his, his, his shot, craft his his skill is is on full display um and we also think of him as being quite a um, quite a relaxed customer on court i think um so it was really pleasing to see that he actually covered less distance in each of his four matches here than his opponents did um so if you look at the last 16 for instance um this was the really really quick half an hour victory over marwan and Gawad covered 1.2 kilometers and Marwan 1.3 in that. So Marwan about 10% more. Um, versus Elias in the quarters, 2.1 kilometers for Gawad, 2.2 for Elias. Uh, and very, very similar numbers in the final versus Farag. And the biggest difference was in the semi versus Mohamed El Shabagi, this, this tussle of a five gamer, where Gawad covered 3.3 kilometers over the course of five games. And Mohamed El Shabagi a whole ten percent higher up at three point six kilometers, so three hundred more meters over the course of the match, sixty meters more per game, and it starts to add up for yeah. sure. One of the other things I think which really underscored Gawad's tournament was how high he was pushing up the court. Um, he was really, really reaching wide on his volleys from mid-court. I think especially of this five-game semi-final versus Shabagi, he was almost scraping the side wall. On the short line with how with how high up he was he was pressing and if you look at these four matches he was volleying one in four shots across these last 16 quarterfinals semi and finals that's a really high number to put that in context that is the same as ali farag does normally which is the highest on both the men's and the women's side of the psa tour so gawad volleying one in four compared with his opponents here one in six um and i think to break that down further um if i can it was really revealing to me, in fact, that 
Goward was volleying most in these matches in the first games. He was actually well above the one in four mark, closer to one in three in the first games of all of these four encounters. And I always like looking at the stats in game one in particular because I think it's most revealing as to a player's game plan. It's the one they naturally have at the forefront of the mind when they start a match. And their game plan by that stage probably hasn't been altered by either a dip in concentration or what their opponents are doing differently and they've adapted, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a really clear indication, one step removed, that Gawad was really trying to focus on pushing up and volleying. By the course over the course of the matches, then this volley rate dipped. So starting at one in three, then down to one in four, and eventually down to one in five in that fifth game versus Shabagi. Is that so, one I of mean, the things I know? Gawad uh, always had this reputation for being a slow starter, so uh, it could have been, you know, maybe just something—a conscious thing on his part, and maybe his team to just sort of get out, get out of the blocks a bit more quickly. And it really over. You know, since he's come back, that's what he's been doing, hasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it, it, looking at Gawad's slow start is one of the things um, we did um, actually way back when at CrossCourt Analytics. And it, it is one of those things which is genuinely true. Um, he genuinely loses more first games. I think I think he only won 40% of the first games, which we analysed, mm. um, compared with equivalent top 10 players at around the 55 60% mark so that is one of those things which is genuinely true Gawad is genuinely a slow starter and I think that's quite um quite revealing um a relaxed character certainly yeah um, I was thinking I, I I think it might have something to do with uh, could have something to do with the fact that he's ranked his ranking is so you know far behind what it should be that every every match from the first round he played uh Yusuf Solomon I think uh in the world was it world the world open in the first round i think he played yusuf uh could be mistaken there but um it was in the, one of the, the recent tournaments it, from every round beyond that it just gotten tougher and tougher and tougher but first round match uh he had to you know he, he couldn't afford to have a dip in uh concentration in the first game yeah absolutely not um i noticed that he was drawing against elias really early on in alguna um, and despite beating Elias in Chicago, Elias got the uh, got the better of him. Um, but yeah, I have no doubt that he's going to be top ten soon, and perhaps even higher than that before long. So it won't be long before he's uh, has a slightly more comfortable ride to the quarterfinals. An interesting stat too might might be you know Alguna. I, I'm not going to say that players kind of mailed it in there, but uh, I mean obviously Ali wanted the number one ranking, and a lot of players were vying for it. But you saw a lot of sort of upsets or you saw a lot of guys just sort of not wanting, not sort of playing their, their at their best or giving a hundred percent. I think the sea once, once the world championships were over, the British opens over uh, those big majors are over. Alguna is a major, but, uh, and also you, you know, it's in Alguna half the, half the stuff you saw on social media, everybody was by the pool and, uh, you know, there's some absolutely well. gorgeous photos of, of the sea, weren't there? Yeah, that, that one from Ali Alainen in particular really really caught my fancy. I was very jealous of those yeah, yeah. blue seas and yellow sands. But I'm just thinking... But no, it's, it's certainly that, true. Um, yeah, I, it's definitely worth looking into. Um, I, I know many players have, uh, have said how much they've really felt these last couple of weeks um, in terms of an end of a long season. We've had quite a few more injuries than you might have expected. Um, Amanda Sobey 
uh, one of the players we work with on the women's side of the tour certainly um, um, sort of suffered adductor damage in in Manchester shortly after flying in from the World Championships, and I think it must be really hard for players to to build to this crescendo of the World Championships, the most important tournament of the season, um, and then for there to be another month of of the tour. The other tournament which really springs to my mind in terms of a really high number of upsets was the Optasia Championships in London um, in in March or April, I think it was. Um, and basically, every match you looked at was was inverted in terms of who you, who you expected to win. Um, so I, I know was it Charlie Lee got one over Mohamed Al Shabagi, yeah. um, and ultimately um, that was a tournament which signaled to the world that Gawad was back, wasn't it? That was the one he won, and and he used it as a springboard for Chicago for sure. Did uh, I think he he beat uh, Diego in that one, didn't he? Uh, was that right? Yeah, that's right. And I think Elias had to pull out, if I if I'm not mistaken. So again, one of those things where an indication of yeah. a player. Um, yeah, slightly wary of an injury, perhaps, and again, not being able to to summon up the adrenaline, very understandably so, um, to get them through a lower ranking tournament with a with a high ranking one just around the corner. Yeah, so it sort of just uh, begs the question, you know, which, which events are these are, are the players? Obviously, they're they're aiming to 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 win the British, to to win the World Championships, and then you know that you know whatever happens beyond that is, uh, I guess, gravy, but. Uh, yeah, in in terms of in terms of the data on that, I don't have anything concrete um, to to provide you with. But anecdotally, one of the things which which really strikes me is, and we'll see it in a couple of weeks' time at the World Tour Finals. Mm. This is the first time that, or rather, it is the only tournament really in the calendar when the top eight players play each other when fresh. So usually. They only play each other in the quarterfinals, right, or later on in the tournament. So they've already they're already carrying in a hundred, two hundred, two hundred and fifty minutes into those matches, right? Yeah. Um, whereas in the World Tour finals, they're playing each other with zero minutes under the belt, and it, it's always really struck me just how long the games are at the World Tour finals. It's very common to see twenty twenty five minute games, yeah, um, yeah. when typically you would expect about a ten twelve minute one. Yeah, well, uh, that's coming up uh, in two, two, three weeks, is it? Uh, when, when's the that's World right. Tour? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, just in, in the middle, late middle section of June. So, um, yeah. and that really does conclude the tournament uh, season. So, yeah. Right on. Uh, now, uh, Jamie, you you were kind of this is uh, this is part one of our uh, uh, two podcast uh, uh, series. So, in part two, hopefully, you're going to be coming back and maybe maybe even bring uh, Stuart along with you. Uh, but in terms of uh, you know part two, um, we're going to look uh, sort of do a recap of the season in a couple of different uh, areas. So, uh, what about a little teaser? What what do we have? What can we look forward to uh, for part two, Jamie? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, you me- you mentioned Stuart, and uh, it would be remiss of me not to say that we have indeed started our own podcast, the Cross Court Pod, Absolutely, yeah. uh, where where we where we break down matches uh, statistically yeah. um, speaking. So um, so so yeah, if, if you've liked this, and there's there's more of this on the Cross Court Pod. Um, in yeah, in terms what, what, what of uh, the season review, mind, uh, you know, I, I don't mind you pimping your own podcast here. Uh, what, <laughs> Cheers, I appreciate it. <laughs> What, do you, uh, what what are the recent episodes? Uh, I know them, obviously I've listened, but uh, what are they uh, what what are the the most recent episodes that you've done uh, till now? 
So the most recent one we've done looked at Ali Farag's win in Chicago. Great. Um, so yeah, coming back from injury and just what he was doing to uh, to get that far and, and how he got the better of Kareem Abdul-Gawad. The first episode we did, so that, that's episode number two. The first episode we've done, um, it was looking at Elias's rise to world number one. So what was he doing differently to get to that stage? Uh, and how had he adapted his game to allow him to get there compared with six months ago, 12 months ago? The episode we've got coming up, I'm particularly excited about. Um, we're going to be breaking down Norel Shabini, um, her game, her, her wins in the British Open, the World Championships, um, and exactly how she can get the better of Gohal seemingly when it really matters, which I think is a fascinating question. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, Go, uh, Shabini just seems to rise to the occasion every single time. Uh, and uh, look, looking forward to to that. Uh, um think Gohar, part of it's mental, but part of it's just Sherbini, you know, a big part of it's Sherbini. I mean, she's just got, she's got such a, she's got the game that I think when she's playing at her very best, she's definitely uh, number one in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and we saw that in the British and, and the World Championships. Um, yeah, Gohar looked like a player who'd sort of run out of ideas. I think there was one, one particular shot um, which comes to mind in the British Open final with a drive just sitting halfway up the back wall in the centre of the court, sort of a, a really unusual yeah. shot to see at that at that yeah. really high level. Um, and it was just indicative of a player being asked to play shots which she isn't usually asked to. And that's because Shabini can can keep it tighter and uh, and fade it into the corners better than anyone else. Um, so there'll be more of that on the cross-court pod when I break it down with Stuart. Um, in, in terms of... Uh, yeah, and uh, well, it's it's been a great it's a great thing for us to record as well. Um, our our audience is is growing, but is like any like anything in the squash world is small. Um, so yeah. there's definitely a part of me which thinks that Stuart and I are doing this for our own satisfaction as much as anything else. Um, yeah. Well, the more of you, more of this is fantastic. I mean, I was just going to say uh, we talked about uh, Gawad being you know the comeback player of the year, but uh, your podcast and Ali Farag, I mean, without question, uh, Ali's. The, the best player in the world. Uh, the last three tournaments have proven it. And I don't think I've seen squash played at that level for a very long time. He's just unbelievable. Uh, I, I was trying, I was playing the other day and I was just thinking, you know, okay, I'm going to practice hitting the ball as tight as I can. And then trying to hit it tighter off of that tight shot, the way he does. This is, I have no idea how he does that. Is it, it's like phenomenal. he just picked how do you do it uh, how does he do it do you have the stats on that Jamie for tight off tight no it's it, it's one of the things which I that's got to be that's a great stat um, and tight. defining tight off tight yeah tight off tight how tight off tight I, yeah I I think the way to start breaking that down and it's not something we currently collect data on um uh, remind um, listeners that our data is fundamentally manually collected. And so we want to caution absolute precision when it comes to location on court. Um, I, I think one of the ways to break down tight by tight, tight off tight rather, is to look at the number of floorboards. So like that, that would give you a really precise and repeatable definition of what tight counts as. Players talk about two floorboards being super tight. Um, yeah. so, so I think, yeah, if it relies on having the right camera angle, but something like how often does a player hit from within two floorboards back to within two floorboards would be 
would be a serious question um, and yeah. yeah one which we'll work on for sure <laughs> absolutely so we have uh in the uh in the part two of the podcast kind of looking maybe uh, looking at a farag looking at uh like the Sherbini, a, a bit of a recap of, of the season, and maybe some statistics uh, that 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 we, that sort of would reflect on the upcoming season, maybe. Yeah, certainly. I think I think the state of the two halves of, of the two tours are, are in really interesting places now for very different reasons. Um, so you've got Nuran Gohar dominating the rankings on the women's side with Sherbini momentarily. Um, topping the rankings but now back to number two but then Shabini coming to the four in those really high ticket events um, and 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 you've seen a real consolidation of the top three Egyptians go Hamami and Shabini on the women's side of the tour on the men's it's completely different um, so Mohamed Al-Shabagi coming back having been in a slump and the first half of the season was really dominated by his return to form then Asal took over number one in January. Then Elias and Farag coming back when it matters. Very dynamic. Number one. Absolutely. There's there's so many challenges for any given tournament. Um, Paul Cole's down recently, but he might be able to reverse that course. And of course, players like um, Mazen Heshamik to crew out on the rise as well. So I think both tours are in very different places right now, but none more interesting than the other. I think they both have very interesting narratives so i'll come back with some some stats on uh on those things for you next time absolutely uh i was just thinking uh, i mean with, with the women's tour the men's uh you know there's a lot of a lot of movement there but ali might have a, a, a stranglehold on that number one if he keeps playing the way he is uh every he seems to be getting getting through in these big events uh uh, consistently at least he has the last few and he, but on the women's side uh it's pretty much business as usual just in terms of what it looks what it looked like last year and what it looks like right now but maybe uh the statistics or something you might see statistic wise might reflect uh, slightly differently from last year maybe that's something uh uh you you might uh look into or or have in the uh, in in terms of the the stats on in that regard, yeah, certainly. I th- I, th- I think one of the things uh, which would be worth touching upon is uh, is Noran Gohar in particular, in the sense that she seems to have landed on this formula to completely um, breeze through seemingly tournaments up until the final, right? Yeah. Um, in, in, until she plays either Hamami or Shabini. Um, so one of the things I'll, I'll do ahead of that podcast is break down Gohar's matches by Hamami and Shabini on the one hand and all the rest on the other and uh, and just see what it's like in terms of um, how often she's able to to find the corners from from her straight drives, whether her, her winner and error um, shot types differ. One of the things which really marks out Gohar on the women's side of the tour it's just how many um, drive winners she hits. So she hits a huge number of winners into the back corners, about 40%. Um, and this is way up on Shabini and Goha. Uh, sorry, Shabini and Hamami um, down at 30%. Um, those players are more traditional in the sense that they they exploit areas and space into the front corners. Um, and and you, you talked earlier about us bringing stats into the squash tv feed it's something we've done informally via our relationships with with johnny williams um and joey barrington so i know that lisa rake can recently use that stat shabini hitting 
length uh, so Shabini hitting short winners and go hitting hitting long winners um so hopefully it's that kind of thing which which can add a new dimension to to the viewers yeah it'd be interesting to to see it may maybe it may be food for thought for other players although you don't you don't want to look like you're trying to give uh, other players the formula for success over a uh, given player but just uh like in terms of gohar uh how often do like what what do other players do? Uh, is there like a d? De- is it a default thing? Like when Gohar just hammers the ball, do other players just want to hammer it back? Is that is that what tends to happen? Whereas the smart was sort of the the players who know how to beat her don't do that. Well, possibly I I think I think Gohar is one of those players against whom the the line everyone has the plan until they're smacked in the face is particularly relevant it's one of those things i get the impression that and i'm I'm sure from, from amateurs all the way up to professionals we've all played players who hit the ball incredibly powerfully and it's just a whirlwind as soon as you step on court um so it, it's one thing telling yourself going into playing go hard perhaps if your valid tactic was i'm going to lift here i'm going to try and just take pace out of the game and make her put in all the pace into the game um it's another thing entirely doing that in practice when you're stretching for balls because she drives it so low and so powerfully and and time is taken away from you noran goha is i i think he's got a really relevant place in in the cross-court analytics narrative she's actually the the one player in particular we built a whole statistic around um <laughs> one of the statistics we now collect is shot time in in between shots um so interestingly this ranges from about like 1.3 seconds to to 1.5 1.6 and, and what about assault fundamentally the reason we collected <laughs> Oh, so sorry, I missed that. Say that again. So how about a sol? <laughs> yeah, a hundred seconds of uh, uh, refereeing intervention, perhaps. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so is it? Is it yeah, she, she genuinely sort of looking at Gohar play um, was sort of spurred spurred us on to 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 try and collect shot time in between shots. So so typically you see about 1.4 1.5 seconds ranging from 1.3 perhaps up to to 1.7 if if a lob is is played um oh, it's sorry, one of the things between, um, between shots between shots between oh, okay. shots thought, absolutely so points so pardon me mm-hmm. yeah one I was going to say gotcha, one gotcha. no no uh, my my bad it, 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 in between shots so so again for as a teaser for next time um i'll come back armed with uh with stats on uh noran gohar's between shot length and perhaps someone like paul cole who you'd expect a really ha- relatively high duration mm. of in between shot um sort of durations given how much he uses height uh this is a uh, really good stuff uh jamie we we could talk uh we could talk for hours here uh, about any uh, number of topics, but uh, you guys are doing fantastic work at the uh, cross court analytics and I really appreciate your time. Did we miss out anything? And uh, just sort of, I know you, you mentioned it earlier, where can people uh, find uh, what they, you know, any of the, any more of this interesting stuff from, from you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're interested, check out our website, that's crosscourtanalytics.com. We've recently launched um, a new version of the website, so I encourage people to, to check that out. Um, the website details who we work with, which is professionals and amateurs alike. 
Some of the pros we've been working with this season are Olivia Fichter, Ali Alainen, of course, first season on tour. Um, oh, yeah. And probably uh, most successful. By the way, Ali, uh, I, I watched his match against, um, who did he just, he lost out, a, oh, Victor. Yeah, it was oh, crazy. That's absolutely fight, amazing yeah. that when he was hopping around on one leg there in the, in the, <laughs> oh, but he, he's absolutely. A very, he's a fun watch. Uh, I like watching him play. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and just an absolute gentleman as well. It's, yeah. it's really, it's, it's great spending time with a line. And I've caught up with him at the British Open and Manchester when he's in the UK. Um, so, so yeah, really down to a, a great person to chat squash with. Um, so, so yeah, perhaps the most successful partnership in terms of on-court results we've been working with this season is Amanda Sobey. Um, it, it was really, really pleasing to see her um, get the better of Hani El-Hamami and Noel Shabini um, in recent months. Just in terms of that, is, uh, I think this is interesting. Like, um, you, like Amanda had a pretty successful season. Did she, uh, obviously, she's used the statistics to help her game. Is that... That has to be the case, right? Like, how did how what what would she have done? Just to well, we can end on this note. Uh, how what would she have done with the stats in terms of helping herself uh, uh, develop uh, over the season? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, uh, so Amanda Sobi, uh, 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 she she came to us and said, um, uh, "There, there are five players above me in the world who I need to beat." Um, please help me work on. Uh, please provide the numbers for me to to build game plans to beat them. Um, clearly, beating the top three Egyptians is a serious challenge. Um, but what we're keen to do at CrossCourt Analytics is, is to provide that extra one or two percent. We're talking very fine margins here. Um, but if you know that certain players are more likely to play certain shots than others, this is the rally pattern information we collect or make certain winners and uh, and errors in, in certain regions of the court at certain points in the game then um then this clearly allows you to uh to tailor your game plan appropriately so so Amanda took in different uh, game plans to to her matches versus Noel Shabini in the black ball which she won and Hanya Hamami in the British Open which she won uh, which was a huge feather in her cap I was absolutely thrilled for her to to come with those uh those two victories as despite a a, a downer for her to finish the season with an injury I, I hope that she's taken a lot from it in terms of those two victories over two of the top players. Yeah, I hope it's not too serious because it was great to see her. I mean, she's she's another really good watch. I love watching her play. She she's a bit I wouldn't say unorthodox because she's got great hands and she she's moving well. She she's a really smart player. Uh, so uh, yeah, she's another uh, per, another player I love watching play, and hopefully uh, we see more uh, progress from her uh, uh, next season. Uh, Jamie, really great uh, uh, stuff today. And, uh, and after the tour final, let's uh, let's touch base and maybe do the uh, part two uh, recap of the, the season, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Looking forward to it already. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Cheers, Jerry. Have a nice one. Cheers, bud. Well, wow, no, that was really interesting stuff there with Jamie. Uh, so much to chew on. Um, we went off on a few tandem, tangents there just because uh, what they're doing at cross-court anal- analytics uh, adds so much value to the game. And uh, I believe it definitely bodes well going forward in many respects. Uh, looking forward to hopefully having Jamie back shortly after the tour final to discuss uh, what some of the numbers tell us 
on uh, this season as a whole. Now, uh, with the summer coming up, uh, that means there will be some different exciting uh, content uh, above and beyond the stuff in the pro game that uh, I tend to uh, sometimes focus uh, maybe a bit too much on. But before we get there, uh, I'm hoping to have a few surprises before and or during uh, the tour final uh, coming up. So stay tuned. Uh, Lots to look forward to here on the podcast. Uh, Please uh, share on social media, share the pod on social media with your squash community squash friends uh, even drop a few pennies in the paypal hat at the soundcloud site to help contribute to the cost of keeping the pod up and running and of course uh, everybody all the best with your squash uh, even though it's summer i'm definitely planning to get out at least once a week uh, over the summer normally I don't typically put the racket away for the entirety uh, of the summer. And uh, now at my advanced age, uh, I'm not so sure that's a good idea because of, you know, definitely planning to play quite a bit uh, come uh, the so-called squash season, come September, October, uh, definitely uh, beginning in October, uh, full on. But uh, I'm, of the, I'm of the belief now that uh, you need to keep your body tuned uh, for the game. And if you step aside for too long, or at least if I do, Uh, You'll be setting yourself up for a bit of a struggle uh, once you decide uh, or if you decide to get back on court uh, in in full. And uh, I want to keep the injuries at bay. I've had uh, over the last five, six years, I've had a few not nasty ones, but a few niggles here and there. And I think uh, definitely can keep those at bay by staying on court, you know, doing a few, uh, you know, a bit of training and also getting out for at least one weekly sparring session with a few of the guys here. That can definitely keep the injuries at bay as long as I stay fit off the court. And uh, I think that's a recipe for success uh, for everybody if you're planning, you know, to maybe put the racket away a little bit over the summer. And, uh, you know, then when you come back in full, you'll be slow. Knicks, and as uh, Jamie and I talked about, uh, one thing I'm going to be working on uh, more is uh, and watching Ali Farag because he does it the best, uh, hitting tight off tight. That's the key for the summer. Maybe summer improvement, keep uh, hitting uh, tight off tight. All the best, everybody. All the best with your squash, with your families, and uh, stay tuned. We've got some great episodes upcoming. Talk to you soon, and have a great day. Goodbye now. <laughs>